people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is our country. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our number here, 844 244 3750 toll free from anywhere our website an economy of one.com an economy of one.com as is our facebook an economy of one well i've had an interesting week i want to share a couple things with you i was able to go to the uh national nra convention in uh nashville tennessee and uh that i was i mean if you've never gone you gotta go you got you got 78 thousand like-minded people 78,000 people that are adamant they're passionate about the second amendment they're passionate about their gun rights um and oh this is killer nine acres of exhibits nine acres of vendors and innovations in the gun industry as well as all the big names, all the big names, Glock, Smith & Wesson, Henry, uh, everybody. Everybody is there, and uh, I, I rarely, rarely go to that without finding several new things out there that I just got to have. Got to have them. And uh, we'll be talking to several of those vendors and suppliers in the weeks ahead, but... Uh, if you haven't got, you got to go. Now, next year, it's in Louisville, Kentucky. So not too far from Nashville, a few hours, right in the middle of the country. And it's, uh, I think it's May 20th next year. So it's a little bit uh, later in the season than normal. But you got to go. You got to go. Now, I just got to tell you my experience. For those of you that know me personally, you'll appreciate this story a little more. We waited a little too long to get our hotel reservation and so we stayed i don't know i think it was eight nine miles away from the convention center in a very big very nice <clears throat> fairly expensive uh hotel uh over by the grand old opry and um it, beautiful we've stayed at that chain before and was expecting a a nice experience however when we walked in the lobby was jammed full. There was an over over an hour wait to check in to our room. And I asked the lady ahead of me in line, I said, what is going on? What What's all these people here for Opryland or the Grand Old Opry? And she said to me some of the worst words I'll ever hear in my life. And that was, oh, no, this weekend is a national cheerleading competition. That's right. We had several thousand cheerleaders in the hotel. 
Now, if they was NFL cheerleaders, I'd have tolerated it, I think. But all of these cheerleaders, I never saw any of them over the age of 12, I don't think. My goodness, all the way down to, I, I'm no judge of age very well, but it's got to be five or six years old. My goodness. And, of course, they had to practice in their rooms before they went to the big competition, that kind of stuff. But uh, made an interesting weekend for my wife and I. And uh, you can bet that uh, next year we're going to find out who else is staying in our hotel before we book the rooms. I, that, 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 was, that was too much. Anyway, this week, I'm sure you're all aware, was uh, tax day, IRS week. April 15th was this week. And you had to pony up some money and file some forms and, and that kind of stuff. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the IRS and taxes and, and that kind of stuff because it coincides with another event, another anniversary uh, this week that we'll talk about in a little bit. In 1862, 1862 was the first income tax. President Lincoln started an income tax in 1862 on 3% of incomes between $600 and $10,000 and 5% tax on incomes more than $10,000. Now, he used this. He needed the money to finance the Civil War. So he financed the Civil War with this income tax. And a few years after the Civil War, uh, to, to help a little bit on the Reconstruction. But in 1867, just five years later, uh, it stopped. It stopped. No more income tax. Then in 1894, the Wilson Tariff Act revived the income tax and started with the Bureau of Internal Revenue. Just a few years after that, the Supreme Court ruled that the new income tax was unconstitutional on the grounds that it was a direct tax and not apportioned among the states on the basis of population, which the Constitution says it has to be an apportioned tax. In 1909, President Taft recommended Congress propose a constitutional amendment that would change that provision so that it didn't have to be an apportionment among the states. So, in 1913, they got their three-quarters of the state approval, and the 16th Amendment was born, giving Congress the power to tax incomes. Now, just as a side note, Wyoming was the the uh, over-the-top vote. So uh, when you travel to Wyoming, make sure you thank them. For our affiliates in Wyoming that carry the station, I'm sorry for picking on you. But uh, I know it was a long time ago, <clears throat> but you were the 36th state and the last state needed to adopt the income tax amendment. Another bad thing happened in 1913, as we all know. We're not going to talk about today, but that 
is the Federal Reserve was created that same year. That was a bad year. That was a bad year. Now, 1913, income tax. The first income tax form, the first 1040, the tax ranged from 1% to as high as, you ready? 6% on incomes over $500,000. Now, the thing to keep in mind, what, what sticks out in my mind from President Lincoln in 1862 to 1894 Wilson Tariff Act to 1913 and on was, you ready? It was a flat tax. Simply amount of income, flat percentage tax, and you paid your tax. Yes, there were some deductions, but the first income tax form was four pages long. Now, in keeping with the tradition of taxing incomes to finance wars, when we went into World War I, the top tax rate ballooned to 77%. 77% of income was taken to finance our activity in World War I. Over the next several years, down to 1929, that 77% chipped away down to 24%. But 77% in 1919, can you imagine that? That's real tax. By the time the 50s came along, it was 94%. President Kennedy dropped that down to, I think the top rate was around 78, and then President Reagan brought it all the way down to, I believe 28% was, was his top rate. So a little bit of history on the IRS. When we come back, we'll spend a little bit more time talking about uh, what the agency is going for now. This will fry your cookies. And uh, we're also going to talk about Equal Pay Day. Equal Pay Day was this week also. So I got some comments for you on that. It's an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. to an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our number here, 844-244-3750. Toll free from anywhere. You got a comment or question, don't hesitate to give me a call. Be glad to talk about it on air. Being a tax week, a couple of things you want to look at. The, the it, it surprised me this year. This year was a little bit different. Generally speaking, Beginning in oh, late January, early February, we start reading stories in all of the different forms of media about people that cheated on their taxes and the evil, awful things that happened to them by cheating on their taxes. And this is a, a psychological conditioning that the IRS does each year, or the government or somebody, to make us fearful of cheating on our taxes. Now, I will admit I never cheat on my taxes. I gripe about taxes all year long. I hate paying them. I pay more than I ever thought I would. But I will not cheat on taxes because it's, to me, it's an integrity thing. Not agreeing with the law and not abiding by the law are two different things. 
and I don't agree with the law, but I always abide by the law. So I'm not going to put my family in danger. Uh, I'm not going to put my wealth in danger just to try to save a few bucks on taxes. It's better to pay them and complain about them all year. But I have had the three-year rectal exam audit. I have had that audit where you have to verify and back up every single number on your tax return. And I've I've had to do that for three years. Not recently, but I, I had three years in a row. Out of those three years, government got me for 72 bucks. 72 bucks. I missed a a dividend on one year, and they charged me tax and penalties on that dividend. So I'm very pleased with that. But as the IRS budget keeps getting squeezed, Congress keeps squeezing, and rightly so. Rightly so. The IRS has evolved from a a revenue collection uh, agency to more of a policy agency. In other words, the IRS encourages you to experience or exhibit certain behaviors uh everything from uh uh, getting energy efficient windows to uh uh, hybrid cars to, to all of this kind of stuff but in recent years they've gotten a negative reaction from congress and consequently their budgets have been constantly being cut So the odds of getting audited in general for 2014, the odds of getting audited are 0.9%, slightly less than 1%. If you make more than $200,000 up to a million, you're about 2.5% chance of getting audited. And if you make more than a million dollars, you have about a 7.5% chance of getting audited. So the numbers aren't very big. That doesn't mean you should cheat because you're unlikely to get caught. I'm just telling you that the numbers aren't very big for the chances of getting audited. Each year, the IRS targets a certain sector of the population or the market to focus their audits on. This year, this year, they're focusing on people who live outside the United States. If you live outside the United States and file an income tax return, you're more likely to get audited than living inside the United States. Now, as we speak, the IRS is is making its claim to lawmakers for more money. They don't have enough money in their budget to properly collect all the money that they should. They're making their case for more money. And, and, you know, I'll give Congress credit. They are asking some tough questions. The IRS has admitted there are days when only 40% of the people calling in gets their, their call answered. Their customer service is so bad that before the office opens, some offices had two hours of uh, people standing outside in line waiting to get in waiting to get in to ask questions. Now, there's 74,000 pages of regulation in the IRS. 74,000 pages. No one is compliant. No one 
understands how to file their taxes and knows what to do. Nobody. The trouble that the IRS is having in their reputation is not only lowest learner type activity, defying Congress, refusing to turn over emails, targeting special groups in the uh, United States for uh, either audits or not approving their applications for nonprofit, but also spending millions and millions of dollars on stuff. They spent $4.3 million on market research. What are they researching in the market? $8,000 on a stair climber. Really? $4 million on office furniture. And we've all read the, the stories about the junkets, you know, where all the IRS agents go to Las Vegas and, and hire hookers and gamble and all that kind of stuff. They're going to have a tough time getting their budget increased. I guarantee it. Tough time, and they should. Now, there are some out there that say, you know what? Maybe we should eliminate the IRS. For better than 100 years in America's history, we did not have an IRS. We did not have an income tax, and the government worked just fine. 90% of the revenue prior to the income tax, you know where it came from? 90% of the revenue came from taxes or tariffs on alcohol and tobacco, those kind of things. So there was no income tax, there was no IRS, was no audits, no 1040s, none of that stuff, and the government got along just fine. Didn't have deficits to speak of, didn't have a national debt to speak of. Did we run deficits from time to time? Absolutely. But for the most part, it ran just fine. And by the way, that first 100 years or so, Pretty much zero inflation. So the dollar maintained its value throughout that entire hundred years. Something to think about. By the way, we were also on the gold standard during that first hundred years, too. Coming up, I'm going to give you some updates on some stories we've covered in weeks past. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about an anniversary uh, important to one of my favorite presidents in history. Gary Raspin, an economy of one. Now, back to an economy of one with Gary Raspin. We are back. Our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, an economy of one. Our number here, 844-244-3750, toll free from anywhere. You got a comment or question, give me a call. You know, 150 years ago this week, 150 years ago, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. April 14th, 1865, John Wilkes Booth, who was an actor and a Confederate sympathizer, fatally shot President uh, Lincoln at Ford's Theater. We all know the story. But I felt it was important to refresh that story on the 150th anniversary. I'm, I'm a big Lincoln fan. 
Uh, thought he was a great president. Yes, yes, he had his faults, uh, as every person does. He was not a perfect man. By the way, a little note of trivia. Do you know that currently, and probably for the foreseeable future, there are no living relatives to President Lincoln? None. His son, I think, was buried with him. He had died uh, while in the White House of uh, typhoid fever or something like that. And uh, no living relatives to President Lincoln. Anyway, John Wilkes Booth shot President Lincoln in the back of the head with a forty-four caliber single shot Derringer. Now, for those of you that understand guns, forty-four caliber, that's a big bullet. Now, what was interesting to me is, for those of you that uh, uh, know who I am, my last name is Rathbun, R-A-T-H-B-U-N. And my whole life, I have fought uh, the, the mispronunciation and misspelling of my name. It seems so simple to me, R-A-T-H-B-U-N. However... When my father died about 20 years ago, I started doing some family history, traced my family lineage all the way back to 1792 when John and Martha Rathbun came over here from England. They went to England from Germany, originally were German, moved to England, came to America, 1792, John and Martha. Okay, now what happened was one, we were very entrepreneurial for the first oh, 100 years or so. And uh, uh, we, we were all over the place. And our name got changed to Rathburn, which is very natural to say instead of Rathbun. I don't know why. And Rathbone, B-O-N-E, R-A-T-H-B-O-N-E. So Rathbun, Rathburn, and Rathbone we're all related. We all go back to John and Martha Rathbun, 1792. Okay, boring, right? Right. It's going to get interesting in a minute. Anyway, <laughs> in the private box above the stage at Ford's Theater, where President Lincoln was watching uh, our American cousin, uh, Laura Keene's uh, performance in American Cousin at Ford's Theater, a well-known com. Uh, uh, comedy at the time with his wife Mary and he was joined by a young officer army officer and his fiance well the young army officer was Henry Rathbone is Henry a relation to me I don't know I haven't found that yet but I do know there weren't very many Rathbuns Rathbones Rathburns in America as are there not very many today. There's very few of us. When President, Ken uh, President Kennedy, when President Lincoln was shot in the back of the head by John Wilkes Booth, the Army officer, Henry Rathbone, jumped up and attacked Booth and was stabbed by Booth. He did survive the stabbing, but uh, he did attack Booth just before he jumped out of the uh, private booth into, uh, onto the stage, uh, yelling his famous line, uh, thus ever to tyrants. Now, he did it in, 
in Latin, and my Latin isn't very good. But uh, um, I found it interesting that possibly, possibly, someone in my lineage was there and witnessed it firsthand. Now, in looking for Booth, it was the largest manhunt in history with over 10,000 federal troops, detectives, and police looking for Booth. They eventually found him, and he, he was held up in uh, uh, a Virginia farmhouse where he and uh, somebody else by the name of Harold um, were hiding out. So the Union troops surrounded the farmhouse, set it on fire, thinking they were going to smoke him out. And, of course, Harold came running out, and uh, Booth didn't. Booth stayed in the house even though it was on fire. And as the fire got more and more tense, a sergeant shot Booth in the neck. And the story was that Booth had allegedly um, raised his gun as if to shoot. So the sergeant shot him in the neck. And uh, they carried him out of the building alive as the building finished burning down, and he lived for three hours before dying. My feeling was good riddance. Getting shot in the neck is not a good way to die, but uh, who deserved it more? Now, the gentleman who was with him, a gentleman by the name of David Harold, as well as uh, two other people and a woman, Mary Surratt, uh, were later hung by the federal government for uh, their part in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I just find that interesting. And I still feel he was one of our, our better presidents, uh, if not the best, if not the greatest president. And 150 years ago this week, he was assassinated. I will find out eventually if that was part of my family tree in the booth with him. But today, I don't know other than same name. Now, over the last several weeks, we've covered several stories that uh, I have found interesting. Not the least of which, it seems like every week I get a new shower story. Remember a few weeks ago, the EPA, I talked about the EPA donating or contributing $15,000 to some university to study uh, the showering habits of people in hotels and what it would take to change their activity to reduce their shower time. And then a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, Governor Brown out in, in California Um regulating, wanting to regulate water usage in individuals' homes. And if your showers were too long or you looked used too much water, he was going to fine you $500 a day or so. And even the water company said they might shut off your water if you're using too much. Well, the latest now is the EPA wants to regulate how your kids bathe. They want 
the EPA wants to uh, enlighten you. That's their way of mandating. They want to enlighten you to have your kids take showers, not baths. They want to make sure that the new generation understands its role in preserving water. Okay. They want kids to be the ones looking for leaks in the toilet or whether their local car wash recycles its water rather than letting it run down the drain. You really want all the children out there being little policemen, little little tattletales? The agency also encourages businesses, listen to this, to have composting toilets. You know what? That's what I want in my office. I want a composting toilet. I'll bring that up to the staff, and and we'll see how they uh, how they feel about that. Every week, we're getting something new on showers. <clears throat> Another update. Remember, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Maine. Maine had the highest, one of the highest percentages of their population participating in the. Supplemental Nutrition Program, food stamps. And they passed a law last year, went into effect, that said in order to maintain getting your food stamps or your nutritional assistance, you were required to put in 20 hours a week of work or volunteer or participate in a work training program to continue receiving benefits. Well, here's what happened. Prior to January 1, prior to that law going into effect, Maine had 12,000 adults in the program. You know what they got now? 2,600 people in the program. It dropped almost 10,000 people. These people, if they have to work, they don't want to participate. That speaks volumes. Finally, this week, Arizona and Tennessee, both states, we got affiliates in both states, have passed laws in their states that says the public school system doesn't have to participate in Michelle Obama's school lunch program. These states are getting tired of this garbage. Too much food is being thrown away. The kids are hungry. You know, if there's anybody in the world that can metabolize a large amount of food it's kids let them eat let them eat coming up department of homeland security is making some interesting uh moves which we'll talk about and something that really really annoys me i can't wait to share with you we'll talk about that next gary raspin an economy of one Now, back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We are back. Our number here, 844-244-3750 on our website, aneconomyofone.com, aneconomyofone.com. Go there, sign up for our free e-newsletter that comes out every week. Has a lot of my commentary as well as market information 
and uh, other interesting things that we put in there on a weekly basis. Department of Homeland Security. You know, a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, the Department of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms made a big push to ban certain types of ammunition, essentially M855 or it's not really 223. I know that. Don't email me, but it's essentially 223 rifle ammunition. Very common, uh, very cheap for high-power rifle. Uh, it's used in in taking care of varmints and uh, target practice, that kind of stuff. Essentially green tips, what they call green tips. And they received a lot of pushback, but the, the nail in the coffin, the final nail in the coffin is when you looked at the brochures and information coming out of the ATF, they had already put in there that it was illegal to have that ammunition, even though they weren't done with public opinion, even though Congress hadn't passed any laws, they just assumed it was going to happen and put it in there. And that was such a, a hit that public outrage went sky high, Congress outrage went sky high, so much so that the director of the ATF at the time uh, resigned. Screwed it up so much, he resigned. And they dropped the attempt to ban M855, green tip. So the administration, the ATF, haven't come back yet and tried to ban it again. They will. But in the meantime, they're doing an end around. Just this last week, Department of Homeland Security put in an order for 62 million rounds of AR-15 ammo, 223. 62 million rounds. And what they're doing, we all know this, everybody knows this, they're trying to dry up the market of ammunition. So far, between NOAA, Department of Homeland Security, TSA, uh, and several other agencies, I forget which ones, but they have bought up and stored over 3 billion rounds of ammunition. That's enough ammunition to kill one-third of the world's population. I do not believe that's their intent at this point. It's also enough ammunition to sustain our entire military in a constant war for 32 years. I ask you, why is the Department of Homeland Security buying up all this ammunition? Why is NOAA buying up this ammunition? Why is the post office buying millions and millions of rounds of ammunition? It can only be to dry up the market so that either you and I can't buy it because it's not available or it becomes so expensive that we can't buy it. I'd like to know what they're doing with it. I'd like to know where it's stored. I'd like to know if they're dumping it in a landfill somewhere or it's actually being stored for our use. I'd like to know if they're giving it to our allies like to know if they're giving it to our enemies. I want to know where it's at. I want to know why they're doing it. It's only been done the last four and a half years or so. 
Do the math. Do the math. Who's in charge the last four years or so? And why are they buying up billions and billions of rounds of ammunition that they have never done in the past? They have never stockpiled this kind of ammunition in the past. What is NOAA doing with ammunition? What is the post office doing with ammunition? Okay, Department of Homeland Security, you know what? You could probably make a case that they need some ammunition. I find it hard to believe they need billions of rounds of ammunition. Now I wanted to share something with you that really has annoyed me. It's annoyed me for a long time. And uh, apparently it's annoying other people. We, we've uh, seen some articles about this and uh, discussion about it. But it's called Checkout Charities. You ever gone through a fast food drive through You ever gone through a, a fast food restaurant? You ever gone to a store, grocery store, bookstore, any of these kind of places where they ask you for your change? If your bill comes to whatever dollars and 63 cents, they will ask you. Do you want to donate your 37 cents to charity? You ever been through that? Ever tick you off? I always say no. Yes, I can afford it. But I am not embarrassed. I'm not going to be put on the spot by being in line, people behind me, and hear me say, no, I'm not going to give my 37 cents to charity. No, I'm not going to donate a dollar, $2, $5 for a charity. Not going to do that. Now, Reuters reported that last year, $350 million in contributions were collected this way. $350 million. Okay? Now, if you want to donate your change, God bless you. Got no problem with that. It's your money. Do whatever you want with it. But don't put me on the spot. Don't try to make me feel guilty for not donating my change. By the way, that money that goes to charity, the $350 million, the companies that collect it are the ones that deduct it. They're getting a tax deduction for my money, and I am not getting the tax deduction. Most of it is through eBay, Walmart, Sam's Club, and McDonald's. Those four account for $123 million. Now, don't blame the clerks. I don't blame the clerks. It's part of their job. They're required to do it. I get annoyed. I think you should be annoyed. I think it ought to stop and not happen anymore. Cashiers are getting bonuses. They're competing with each other. Not right. Not right. I'll give to charity when and where I want to, and I'll give the amount I want to. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor.